I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So the UK might enter next year with or without a trade deal with the EU. Who knows? What we do know is whatever results is going to be pretty convoluted. But is Britain better off with tariffs or without? If it has tariffs, will that encourage the country to build its own domestic industries? And will that make the country richer? Or are we better, as conventional economists and even modern monetary theorists seem to argue, if we take imports from other countries? Will that make us better off? In short, what would tariffs do to Britain. That's this time on the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keane. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. So, Steve, you have argued that the best situation for an economy is for you to have a mix of domestic industries. So it's not a one-horse race. Your your economy is uh, dependent on a number of industries with very strong domestic demand. So those industries can be largely self-sufficient. So if that was the UK... You wouldn't care too much if there was a trade deal or not with the EU because uh, you, you're going to rely on you're going to be more self reliant. Is that a fair summary of, of what what your thinking is? Yeah, I mean, I'm 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 in favour of producing as much as you can domestically uh, uh, within the limits of economies of scale mm. and uh, all the neoclassical or even right back to David Ricardo, the whole argument in favour of specialisation takes something which applies to individuals and then applies it to societies where it's, where it's a, a moribund argument. So like, you know, if, if, when you think about it, this, this is one of the reasons why neoclassical economics is so seductive to people because when they reflect upon it, they reflect upon it in their own circumstances and yes, for example, in my case, I'm much better off just being the, the talking head. Uh, well, I've got this bloke called Phil Dobby who handles all the technical side of the uh, of the podcast mm. and comes up with the questions, yada, yada, yada. So the specialization you and I do on this show is very productive for both of us. And But then when you apply that to an economy, uh, the argument is, well, in, in particularly in um, in mainstream economic theory, you should, and right from Ricardo, which is back in the classical school, uh, you should specialize in what you're good at and let other countries do the, do the remainder. Um it argues about more efficiently allocating what you have at the moment when what really gives you growth over time is in developing new technologies and new industries. And on that approach, the, the results, when you, when you go from a static, maximize the efficiency of the way we use resources we currently have to the dynamic, how do we build more productive resources over time? Uh, the answers in the latter framework tend to be the opposite of those you get in the static framework. So yeah, I'm definitely in favor of, uh, in overall, if I had to see the sort of uh, trade policy I'd like to see uh, globally, it would be domestic industrial policies where people were trying to produce as much as is feasible domestically, given the given the limits that are applied by uh, economies of scale for large scale products like obviously vehicles and uh, and and uh, 
uh, computer chips. Right. So, yeah, the, I mean, the Ricardo approach really was taking a microeconomic approach, wasn't it, and applying it to macroeconomics? Even worse. I mean, this, this, and this is something, what you, the amusing thing is you'd think after 200 years, the argument would have gotten more sophisticated. Uh, but what Ricardo did was imagine a world in which you could produce uh, cloth with labor alone and wine with labor alone, because uh, the only factor of production he considered in his example, a numerical example of Portugal specializing in wine and the UK specializing in cloth, uh, was labor. Now, you can't make anything without machinery, mm. period. Okay. Or grapes. So, in, uh, yeah, yeah. You, know, you, you, you need a wine press. So you've got to have a wine press. You've got to have, uh, you know, uh, barrels. You've got to do fermentation tanks, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there's a, a capital cost as well as a labor cost in producing anything. But all the Ricardo used in the example was the labor costs. Hmm. And then to answer the question about machinery, he basically said, oh, it's very mobile within a country, uh, but not mobile between countries, which is exactly the, op- the direct opposite of reality. It's very easy to ship a wine press from one country to another. It's impossible to turn a wine press into a spinning jenny. Hmm. Um, so what you had was a, a, a mischaracterization of monetary capital when Ricardo was a, was a master of that. He was actually both a successful um, well, con man, actually, who the little cartoon points that out, uh, con man and, uh, and stockbroker, uh, but he knew nothing about manufacturing. And yet these ideas were applied to industries where things are manufactured and you need physical um can occur capital to produce any of those goods. So you simply can't, if you try to specialize and to get more efficient, you actually destroy part mm. of your capital base because you, you, if you're in the country that's, uh, you know, shutting down its, its wine and producing just cloth, which in this, this crazy case is England, let's use Portugal, which can produce both wine and cloth. So Portugal has to shut down its cloth manufacturing. But what that means is the capital that's currently devoted to that becomes obsolete. Yeah. It isn't a case it gets reallocated somewhere else. So the, the, this whole capital argument, but by the way, you, you said a, a con man and, uh, and a stockbroker. I'm sure that's a bit tautological. But it the, is rather, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, uh, so the, the, the capital element of this, the fact that you need uh, you know, some sort of infrastructure, that, that gets back to your, to your early point, that the, the economies of scale, obviously, are, are key to all of this. You can't do everything in, in, your, in your country because there will be economies of scale for some of these things, and, that, and that's where you will need to, to buy in. But if I, if I look at the richest countries for GDP per capita, Luxembourg, Singapore, Ireland, Brunei, Norway, UAE, Kuwait, and Switzerland, take out the, the oil-rich nations, the rest are doing well because they've got a, a positive net trade position. Places like Ireland, for example, imports 90 billion euros and exports 140 billion. But obviously, that, that's everyone a bit can't of fraud. do that. Let, 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 let's not forget Ireland's, uh, a large part of what Ireland has done is encouraging um, you know, te- telecommunications and, commu- and, and computer uh, multinationals to relocate there and pay yeah. almost zero tax. So I'd, yeah. I'd leave Ireland out of the equation. There's just too much fudging going on in the Irish. Okay, well, but the so, other ones so are Sing- Sing- Singapore, yeah, Switzerland, Norway. Yeah. And again, I think they've all got uh, positive balances of trade. My point is mm. uh, that you know the richest countries are the ones that are doing uh, you know a, a positive net trade position. But it's often because they've industrialized to have that positive net trade position. I mean, Norway's also got oil imports, so that that oil exports, pardon me, so that clouds it a bit. But Switzerland and Singapore, uh, Singapore has got the entrepot focus. The really interesting one, as you say, is Switzerland because that has an enormous industrial base. 
Uh, it's, it's also got the finances, what the gnomes of Zurich issue there as well. But the countries that have been successful are the ones that have fo- focused on building up a diversified industrial structure. On that front, I'd rather talk about places like uh, Germany and Japan. And they, again, are running trade surpluses in Japan more than Germany these days. But they've got there by dr- dramatic industrialization. And, and by having as diversified an industrial structure as they can manage, which is the exact opposite of the advice we get out of uh, uh, neoclassicals for free mm. trade. So the most self-sufficient countries, you'd imagine, would be the ones that are going to have low levels of imports. So uh, as you might imagine, the USA does fairly well on that. So imports per capita uh, is $7,400 for the United States. For Germany, it's fourteen point five. So they're a lot less self-sufficient. Australia, interestingly, 8000 imports per capita. France, nine point eight. Um uh, Ireland, because it's only a small country, I guess, uh, 20.3,000, and the UK, 9, 9.8, the same, the same as France. So Germany mm. actually is importing a, a, a great deal more than you know any of those other countries that I mentioned, even though they are an industrial nation. So they're shipping it out and shipping it in. So they uh, And they're doing quite well from that, from, from having and Also, a, Japan does the same thing, because Japan has very few resources of its own. It imports the resources mm. uh, industrially. Processes and exports process goods back. Um, so these are countries so, that are doing relatively well. Okay, Japan's going nowhere at the moment, but Germany's do, do, you know doing well, even though it's uh, it, it is embarking uh, on international trade and less self sufficiency. Mm. But then again, if you look at the countries, I mean, have you have you? I should have done this before we started recording. But if you checked out the uh, um, the atlas of economic complexity on that front for those same countries, because the the, the, the mm. determining factor that the um, that Harvard study, and it is actually there are two two parts, two uh, universities in America that run atlases of economic complexity. The the countries that do best on the trade are also the ones with the most complex industrial structures, and this is where. Um, you know, developing new industries can come from. Uh, it's often that you have a crossover between two industries which currently aren't um, seen as related to each other, which give you a, a new product uh, that expands your industrial base. And that's uh, when, when you look at what actually genuinely empirically causes countries to have a, a developing economy, to have a, 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 a increasing complexity, increasing range of products, increasing welfare, of the population, it's those ones which have a diversified industrial structure. But um, but then they use that to export more, don't they? So rather than just at the moment, again, we're back to the old Bancor issue because again, this is something mm, we talked about last week. Um, yeah, that, yeah, we, we, we've got we've got a thing where it's you're on, if if you run a trade surplus, you're in a hiding to mm. nothing uh, to benefit out of it. And this is, this is one point, of course, I strongly disagree with MMT's uh, arguments on the exports or a cost, imports or a benefit. I, I want to have, 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 a, have a heavy go at that one at some stage, but I, I just reject that argument. Um, what you get is countries that uh, get that export surplus tend to be able to reinvest that in expanding their own productive capacities and industrialize and grow more rapidly. And that's you know, the story of South Korea, Japan, Germany. Um, uh, Singapore as well. Uh, those countries that have that have done that, uh, that have that have um, run a surplus and then invested that to improve their other industries, uh, they're the ones that have, have done well. And it's it's a it's a free game. The controls at the moment there are no controls. It's all supposed to be, you know, changing floating exchange rates that equalise everything. And uh, I think we have. I think Japan's been running a trade surplus for about forty years. Uh, you know, that's a pretty fast speed of of uh, of uh, the price system fixing up imbalances. Not so. Um, mm. 
Yeah, it's it's no wonder they're running export surplus because that's a byproduct of having a diversified industrial structure. Yeah. So I wonder whether that's if you if you do have that positive trade balance, whether you do actually get that diversification because you'd hope, wouldn't you, that companies that were doing well from uh, from exporting and bringing all that money back into the country would say, well, okay, we need to spend that money somehow now. We've pretty much exhausted product A. Let's introduce product B and they would diversify but we don't see that happen very often do we often it goes back into share buybacks no, well, not, not so much from, not so much from well, in, in the modern uh, modern uh, world that's that's the truth mm. but uh, when you look back at uh, the, the periods of industrialization like particularly in Japan uh, Japanese industry was organized into groups like the Meiji and the Mitsubishi group and so on. And they were not just a single product industry. They were, you know, sort of families uh, of, of industrial and banking systems together. And that the Mitsubishi would regard itself as a, as a rival for Mitsui and they'd be trying to expand their own offerings. And what you would then get is the you know, competition between the Mitsubishi brand and Mitsui brand and so on in different industries. And, and that domestic competition is what drove the diversification of the in, overall industrial base. Uh, and, and this, again, if you, I'd throw most economics books into the garbage bin. I'll probably actually compost them. It's probably more useful to get the carbon out of them that way. Um, but I would read my, Michael Porter's The Competitive Advantage of Nations. And what you find is it's often this domestic competition uh, that leads to industrial development over time, which then means that particular small region of a country becomes the dominant a global exporter of some product. And for example, high-speed high cars evolved out of competition in Italy, in a competition between tractor manufacturers. Mm. So uh, you know, that, that's Lamborghini was a tractor manufacturer. So it's, it's this domestic competition uh, leading to rapid industrial development of the product, which then means you can have an export industry. And then to have that, with you have a whole center of suppliers, you've got to also make sure they invest and keep up with you, and that lifts the entire region. So that's right. that's what I'd like to see in so the focus of international right. Do you think that's not happening because we haven't got that domestic competition now then? Because everyone is saying, well, okay, we can because we, we have so much international trade, a company that produces product A, uh, probably will just keep on expanding, selling product A to more different parts of the world because tariffs have come down. It's easier to do that. So they don't need to think about diversification well, I mean, I mean, and they don't have to think about yeah. the domestic market quite so much. Like a huge amount of that was what happened with the industrialization of China because um, the American corporation, rather than thinking about themselves in, in the sort of collective way that the Japanese do, it's how do we screw the workers and get them on lower wages and how we reduce our wage costs and increase profits. And the, when the Chinese said, can you do that by exporting your factories over here and hiring cheap Chinese labor, uh, only the condition you've got to give half the ownership of the company to, your, to a Chinese partner within five years. <clears throat> and, the, you know, cap, American capitalists willingly gave away 50% of the ownership of a company. You, you, it should let you know what the gains were in terms of how much lower they were paying the workforces than they paid domestically. So with, with that culture building up, uh, we've had globalization being a way of trying to exploit wage differences rather than uh, to lead industrial development. And 
it's led to you know, the very distorted uh, world in which we live. And we've got, I mean, supposedly, you know, the World Trade Organization is there to ensure that everyone operates at a, at a level playing field. So I know that, you know, the big sticking point between Britain and the EU is how do you operate at a, a level playing field? And, you know, well, Britain under World Trade Organization rules is going to have the, the same issue. In fact, you know, look at the WTA actually rules over them more than the EU does. So you had, for example, that crazy situation where they were ruling over Airbus subsidies and uh, and because they, you know, so the United States could impose extra tariffs on the EU because they were subsidising Airbus. But then also they said, well, actually, uh, Boeing is subsidised as well. So uh, Europe could impose extra tariffs on the United States. So you, And you've got a body making the call here, the World Trade Organization, uh, saying, you know, what, what subsidies are allowable and, and, and which are not. So, I mean, is that an effective way to operate or is it a more effective way? Do you actually just say, well, let's go back to, you know, let's default to when we had a a tariff. Say, what would happen if you said, right, there's going to be a tariff on everything all the way around the world, 20%. If you set up a trading block like the EU, you can trade within it, but getting in and out, it's going to be 20%, irrespective of what product you're talking about. Would 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 that engender that sort of more domestic production and competition that you're talking about? I think it would take the focus away from the free trade obsession. Uh, and say, well, if you're going to grow, if you're going to you know, develop, you've got to do it by industrial development over time, not by specialising the current resources you're using. And that's that's just reality. That's that's the way you actually achieve development over time is by domestic is by dom- largely domestic investment, not by international trade. So it'd be preferable in in that sense. Uh, and and just like if you, if you go back, you know, fifty, sixty years to when the, the post-war period. Uh, when Japan was industrializing, when Korea was industrializing, there weren't these controls over what they could do. Uh, and they were, you know, incredibly successful in, in leveraging, first of all, low cost wa- uh, wages for international competitiveness, but also, uh, pushing a dramatic level of technological innovation. And I think, I think I've told you once before, one of my favorite examples of what life, how South Korea, for example, differs from, uh, the, the West and, and why it is that South Korea, uh, along with now China has become a major developer in telecommunications. It's because the South Korean government simply mandated when, when the internet became a thing, uh, that every household in, uh, in South Korea had to have a, a T1, uh, Internet connection, mm. which means I get this Ethernet cable, and I had this. Literally, I had the secretary of the Communist Party of South Korea come out to give some seminars at my university. He, an old 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 style Marxist, not a bad bloke. He drove me balmy in some ways. Uh, anyway, uh, when I first showed him to the to the the, the uh, uh, flat I'd rented for him for three months or so, he got out his laptop and was walking around with the Ethernet cable trying to plug it into holes in the wall. And I had to inform him there was no Ethernet system in Australia. Now, mm. uh, that's seen as it's you know, terribly costly and an imposition on, gov- on, on, on uh, countries to uh, have the government mandating telecommunications. But that's why you got things like Samsung developing. Because every yeah. every kid, every household had a T1 connection. Uh, you had, it suddenly had a, the infrastructures provided by the state, uh, mandated by the state, provided by private companies that they wanted to continue operating in telecommunications. That gave them a huge industrial advantage in building a, the telecommunications strengths of, of, of Korean industry. So it's 
that focus upon development rather than trade, industrial development rather than trade, that gives you genuine improvement over time. Yeah. So, so the government should step in then. But how do you look? I mean, if you if you if you started to, um, uh, most economists would say, you know, if the government steps in and starts picking winners, that's where you have the problems. And then if you also push up, Australia's better at picking losers. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> well, it certainly was with the uh, telecommunications, wasn't it? But mm, then if you, yeah. um, but then also if you if you're pushing up tariffs, then, you know, most people would say that's going to slow world trade and that is going to make us all worse off. And I'd say it's not because what actually, what world trade has been is a way of the rich of the the first world uh, chucking the the poor of the first world into a a bit of a um, garbage can and exploiting the, the workers of the third world to the benefit of those workers and capitalists in those countries, I might add. But it certainly was a case of, it's, it's, it's a, a form of, of, of class warfare disguised as, uh, international trade. But if, isn't it, aren't you going to find it, it will gravitate? Uh, I mean, communication is far greater now. So that helps world trade as well. It's easier, it's easier to arrange world trade than, than ever before. So doesn't, aren't you going to find that, you know, it, irrespective of what you do, it's going to gravitate to whoever can produce whatever the product is for the cheapest price. So whether that is because you are going to use uh, cheaper labor because you've got cheaper labor in your country or you're going to outsource it to countries where they can do it cheaper or you've got the natural resources that are required uh, in your territory. So you're going to export oil because you've got lots of oil. Uh, You know, countries that don't have oil can't export it. Or you might make something that, you know, has a, uh, uh, you know, it's always been the way, hasn't it? So, you know, there's various countries which are rich in iron ore, for example. So they could, if they wanted to, extract that iron ore and add to it. They could build cars, for for example, uh, or, uh, you know, have a, have a, at least build it into steel, you know, at least do something with it. Mm-hmm. So um, aren't you going to find that those natural resources or the local, the, the, the state of the local economy and therefore the local wages are always going to give you a competitive advantage? So you are going to see specialization because... People are going to trade, still going to, irrespective of what you do, even if you put tariffs, people are still going to trade globally and it's going to get back to what you can do the cheapest. But it it also is a a case of what pressures you to innovate most rapidly. And again, if you look at the history of innovation, uh, the the, the reason that Scotland was such a major centre for innovation was that Scottish wages were high compared to European wages at the same time. The, The example of the spinning jenny is the best one. Because we, you know, wool used to be spun by a single worker working with a spin- single wheel, and with a, with a spin- with a spinning jenny, initially you have six. Uh, one worker can turn six wheels, so you have just six times the output from one worker, um, with much the same mechanical input. Uh, now that that technology developed in Scotland because wages were high. Uh, yeah. The same technology would have been a loss loser in France. It never happened there. Now that could could mean that your the things which look like they limit you by saying you can't buy this stuff cheaply from a low wage country uh, actually ends up meaning that ultimately you outcompete that low wage country. Now if we go mm. back to uh, the growth of the textile industry in the UK in general when England first invaded uh, India through the, um, uh, the the South what are they called the the uh, East Asia Company uh, which got a, a, a a government-granted monopoly on trade with with India. Uh, Initially, Indian textiles were far more more, uh, sophisticated and far higher quality than English, and there was a a blanket ban slapped on Indian exports of textiles to the UK. But in the next 
30 years, we had the development, first of all, of the spinning jenny, then the steam engine, then mechanizing production, then the, the huge scale growth in textiles that came out of that. So there was the exploitation of energy that gave the UK the advantage. And uh, within about 30 years, the cost of producing uh, textiles in the UK was well below the cost of producing them in India. And then England insisted upon free trade with India. Now, if you look at, uh, there's a wonderful book on the history <laughs> once, of Once they were ahead. Yeah. But I once mean, it was that, ahead, but, it, yeah. but, there, but it was international competition that forced them down that road, wasn't it? They said, Not well, really. Okay, we'll no, no, because you, you, they cut it out. You said you, you can't export mm. Indian uh, textiles at all to the UK. Mm. So it was, an, it was an absence of that. It was just, uh, you, you had people selling to a domestic market uh, who, uh, faced high wage costs to do it, particularly in Scotland, and they therefore were looking for ways to reduce their wage costs, and that was what gave us one of the factors that gave us the invention of the spinning jenny. Mm. Now that that is a case where it, it's it's the domestic focus, and it's again you're trying to you know, by innovation drive down your 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 wage costs, and yeah. you have to have high wage costs in the first place to make that a desirable uh, practice. With low that's wage easy costs, to do you when you've got a, your, well, easy to when you got a country of whatever it was in those days, forty million or whatever, sixty five, I think it is now. But uh, what what if you're a country which has got a population of uh, three million? If you're New Zealand, for example, yeah, and then in that case, see, there's tons of stuff you can't import. You can't if you, you're not going to have your own uh, factory making uh, integrated circuits. You're not going to be making your own car, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you are forced to specialize. Uh, and you know, and, and do what your country in particular can do. That's where the, the, the food milking cows, milking cows, and, and wonderful. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, don't forget, you know, New Zealand is one of the one of the countries currently developing uh, uh, space technology. And uh, in exporting uh, a company that's I've forgotten the name of the company, but it's it fires its rockets off from the north of the North Island, right. and that again is a tech fun. Fueled, fueled by, by milk. milk. Oh, yeah. you're going to lose me some New Zealand subscribers then, mate. <laughs> and uh, I, I absolutely well, love New Zealand. Got, they, they will the love the it. Kiwis have, got, Kiwis have got a great sense of humour. Exactly. I'd rather be a Kiwi than the bloody Australian, given the <laughs> yeah. state of our... But anyway, um, but yeah, the, the, so it, it, these things can turn up anywhere. I mean, look, one of my favourite examples of innovation uh, was an Australian company called Dolmycin, based in that, in that in thriving metropolis of Gosford. Mm. Can, uh, you Lovely. want to describe Gosford to the rest of our audience here? It's a shithole. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. okay. But in, in Gosford, That's the best, the best uh, description I can think of. My mother-in-law okay, yeah. lives there. No, you lovely. had one, you had, you had one engineer, nice. engineer called Terry Cruz. G'day, Terry, if you're still around. Uh, uh, Terry Cruz, who uh, decided that the, there'd been a huge leap in the quality of uh, integrated circuits with the, with the release of what's called the 80186 chip by Intel. And he said, we can produce, we can make a, a, a portable computer using the 80186. Now, it came out at the same time as the IBM PC using an 8088 chip, mm. uh, which for those who don't know this, it was a, a chip with a, uh, I think it was a 16-bit internal calculations and 8-bit external. Uh, very, you know, slow compared to the 80186, which was, about, I think, running at 8, 8 megahertz versus 4.77 in my computer days coming out, and 16 bits internal and external. And that's the chip they based the Dolmont Magnum on. Now, that 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 particular product uh, was ahead of anything that I saw in the industry for another ten years. Right. It was well, how come up. they didn't capitalize on that then? How come they got screwed up by Australian? They got right. screwed by Australian finance. Right. Okay. They couldn't mm. get money. They got to they got to the stage almost ironed all the bugs out. They couldn't get any development funds since they had to release it on the market too early, and it it, it was 
breakdown in the hands of, of you know, non-professional users, wouldn't know what to do, and it folded. But that was the, by far the world's most sophisticated uh, laptop computer, uh, way, way ahead of anywhere else in the world, coming out of a single engineer and the group he assembled around him. So in, in this case, you simply can't use the general arguments of comparative advantage and, you know, we've got more of this resource, therefore we should use it more efficiently. It comes down to innovators and what encourages them. And... Um, you know, and so but back back to the New Zealand yeah. situation, your economies of scale become an issue as well. So they, in the case of the uh, Dolmason uh, uh, company, of course, they had to use Intel chips. But if you take a look at, say, for the, the you would have noticed the most recent Apples are getting absolute rave reviews now. Have you seen that with the, the new M chip for the Apple? Because mm. okay. they're doing it themselves That's- now. Yeah. Yeah, but they're doing it themselves. And what are they using? They're using a company called Arm, which they purchased, which was a British company. Right. Okay. With a very small development team that went down the direction of what they call reduced instruction set chips. And, and those chips ultimately ended up having now overtaken Intel, which are called complex instruction set chips. Uh, so again, it's an engineer. That's that's your key resource. Right. So, but we also what you're also talking about though is is you know capital accumulating. You've got a very big company that's buying other companies in other countries. Uh, that's not helping international trade a great deal. It's helping it's helping international trade. It's not it's not helping domestic trade a great deal. Yeah, so yeah. And, and that was I'm going to ask you the question: Why is it that you know the the big companies, the big tech companies in particular, uh, but you know a lot of big companies are based in in America? Why have we? Why are you know Apple, Facebook, Twitter? They're all in the US. Well, a, lot why? Of it comes out of, a lot of it comes out of, again, the sheer scale of the market. I mean, if you come up with something like Facebook in Australia, well, good luck again to get a few dollars out of it. Hmm. Come up with Facebook in America with 20 times as many potential uh, customers. That's where the economies of scale come in. And that's why the European Union tried to, you know, it was its, its ambition was to be the United States of Europe. Uh, to get that economies of scale that mean they can take on large industries that they couldn't do uh, as separate national right. states. So your idea that the ideal is you know, that you have a, a an economic complexity so that you can look after your, your domestic uh, industries except where economies of scale are required, that's what you are saying earlier on. It's, it strikes me that those economies of scale are becoming uh, more and more important to more and more industries. So what hope have you got? Yeah, I mean, well, that's again with your regional basis. So European production for European consumption, American for American, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, because again, looking at the, I mean, the, the costs involved in international trade, uh, in, in terms of having to ship stuff from one part of the planet to the other, both in terms of the, the, of the monetary costs of that and the energy costs of that and the carbon dioxide costs of that are huge. And all mm. this stuff is assumed out of existence by neoclassical theory. I, I mentioned the comment earlier about Ricardo having a model of international trade involving just labor. I guess another economist who's had exactly the same basis for his, uh, uh, what he received the Nobel Prize for, Paul Krugman. Mm. Yeah, so his theory Your of friend. trade, and which he got the Nobel Prize in the summer of the early 2000s, I think, was a model of production involving labor alone. Now, hang on. We've had two centuries to get beyond the, the mistake that Ricardo made, and we're still making the same mistake. Mm. So interestingly, though, you know, as, as we move towards more service industry, other te- you know, uh, 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 capital is becoming less important, perhaps, isn't it? Than, you know, no. There's less, less machinery, <laughs> you don't think? No, because again, all this, to be the services to run, they've got to run on hardware. I mean, mm. you know, again, um, there are some industries which you, which trade is not a possibility. You can't export haircuts. Um, uh, 
But for the vast majority of products, they're going to, even if you taught them a service, they're going to need technology to have that service uh, exercise. So, um, right. so all of those econ- all of those economies of scale are drifting towards the United States, though, aren't they? I mean, if you, you know, even even if you were setting up a service industry that's sitting, you know, that, that requires server server space, it's, po- it's probably going to be on Amazon Web Services sitting in the United States, or maybe sitting in Europe but owned by Amazon. Uh, you know, it's it's it. You've, you've got this large monopoly now for what is the the, the sort of like the base layer for so much of industry and so, then china being china being the rival and the one thing china hasn't cracked yet is a semiconductor mm. uh, you know, sub micro micron scale semiconductor manufacturing for integrated circuits they haven't managed but that, i think that's one of the major things they're looking at so you're right we have got three major trading blocks that are trying where economies of scale are obviously very strong in their favor america absolutely china mm. as well now and europe trying to achieve the same thing yeah. um so what's, so what's the UK? How does how does the UK become more self sufficient then? Other than, you know, we all agree that we're going to get our hair cut more often, and uh, we're, and we're going to drink a lot more milk because uh, we've got cows too. I mean, you know, it's it it feels like there's a it's a lost hope. You know, you're not going to build up a domestic base because the competition overseas is too great now because it's, but, the, but the horse is already bolted. Down. But again, it comes down to the engineers and, and encouraging what they're capable of, of inventing. And mm. the, again, the, the, what the UK has done over, over the period from Maggie Thatcher has gone from where manufacturing is 20% of GDP down to 10. Over the same time, Germany has gone from 20 down to 20. Um, so it's, it's this neglect of your manufacturing sector that's a large part of why they've been deindustrialized. But it is, is not a case that, uh, India, uh, in, in England lacks for engineers. It had, had an, you know, it was the home, it was the birthplace of engineering mm. in so many ways. Yeah, but so, those engineers are dead now. But. Yeah, yeah. Well, they haven't trained their successors all that well, unfortunately. But there certainly are some out there. And, and again, the, the, so often product innovation uh, is something you can't explain in terms of the physical resources a country has. It comes down to the engineers uh, mm. that you, you train instead and what industries they have to build on that they can actually use domestically. There's no point designing something which you don't have input industries that you can use to, to make that product. Well, innovation often comes from adversity, doesn't it? And on that basis, mm. it's a very bright future for the UK because mm-hmm. there's going to be a lot of that uh, adversity, uh, I think, over, over over coming years. So it's so it's innovation, and so obviously education is linked to that. And then the other aspect of it is is finance, making sure that you've got ready and available finance. And we've talked about that many times. You need banks that are prepared to take risks, and um, they're not. Which they're not. It, yeah. yeah, unless yeah. it's for buying a house. So it once again falls to the failure in the banking sector, doesn't it? A large part of it, yeah. So we resolve much much today apart from the fact that you need more domestic demand and more domestic creation. I'm just wondering whether that's a realistic... uh, realistic The economy is a scale of your limitation, yeah. Mm. All right, very good. Um, We'll uh, we'll catch you again very soon. Thanks, Steve. Like a mate. Bye. Uh, if it is all to do with economies of scale, then why would the UK not want to be part of uh, Europe? I, I, I can ask that because Steve's gone now. Uh, he's not coming back. Well, he's coming back next week when we ask the question, can you overstimulate an economy? Some are warning that the stimulus is being put into various global economies. Uh, if there's a bounce back in the economy next year, that stimulus could prove inflationary. We're already seeing producer prices increasing, for example. Is that an early sign? Uh, 
others say, well, no, because inflation uh, won't kick in until jobs come back, and that's going to take a while. But is there a danger that just inflation fears will cause governments to pull back on stimulus, and could that slow a recovery? Can you overstimulate an economy? We're going to squeeze that one in before Christmas next week. I'm Phil Dobby, back with Steve Keen then. Thanks for listening. 